exercise is good is it just exercise is it diet is it the combination of everything what you know to take away point here what is what is your sort of ethos that you follow and that you like to prescribe to anyone who asks you well it probably is a combination of all of the above but in a way i don't i don't really care because mm. most people who are doing sport tend to have a good diet tend to have you know everything tends to go together what we know about athletes olympic athletes right down to the average person is on average they live longer on average they have mm. fewer heart attacks on average they have fewer strokes on average they have less diabetes everything on average is better and people live longer the thing and i keep saying on average because i think it's important is that if you do all the right things you give yourself every chance of living a longer healthier life but medicine is also about the individual so don't think uh, i've done all the right things therefore i'm guaranteed of a long healthy mm. life because you still have to respect the fact that even the healthiest person can have a problem Well, that was Andre Lagersh. That was last week. An amazing episode. I've had heaps of great feedback about that. I certainly love sitting down and talking to him, and I was just knew everyone would love hearing what we were talking about. And it is true. I've had some great feedback from all types of people. People who have experienced those problems themselves and had different advice and just love hearing his opinion on that. But also, for anyone who doesn't have any problems but are just interested in about it, about the heart like Andre he's super interesting to talk to and I'm glad I had him on the podcast because it was a cracking episode if you haven't heard that go back and listen to that that is last week's episode Andre Lagersh this is Talking Luft and this is presented by Rafa now I've just finished my first race as a non-professional down in Otway Odyssey the 100k marathon mountain bike race and I got to pull on the 2022 EF education easy post kit it was incredible. I loved it. I love kit and I love pulling on fresh kit. It was so cool. It made the event even more special for me. That was a really, really tough event, but at least I looked the part and I felt the part. Love the new kit. I know you guys have seen in the Pro Peloton, but I can tell you firsthand, it was really cool to pull it on again. Now we've got Talking Luft and I've got a really cool guest this week. That's even understating it, George Hincapi. Do I need to introduce him? Because if you don't know who he is, shame on you. He is a pinnacle of the peloton, an iconic name, a guy that I just loved watching throughout my career, before my career actually, through everything, the classics, the grand tours. Oh, he's just such a great guy, a really lovely guy too off the bike. Sat down with him, talked a little bit about his career, but we also did a talking loft. I'm not gonna drag it out anymore, guys. Sit back and enjoy this one. This is an absolute honor. George Hincapie. All right, guys, here we are talking Luft. I've got a very special guest for you today, a household name, George Hincapie. I'm sure everyone knows his name. And if you don't, I don't know where you've been in the cycling world. George, welcome to the podcast. More specifically, welcome to Talking Luft. Thank you, Mitch. It's great to connect with you. I've and I'm telling the listeners how this all happened. I watched your your special on uh, Girona, and I was kind of just like surfing around the internet on GCN, and I saw that you did that, and it was it was very well done, by the way. And it made me miss uh, 
Girona. So that's why I reached out to you, and this is how it just happened. Yeah, you got on the show. So pleasure to be here. Well, you, well, seeing as we're talking about that, you were one of the first guys to go there. And actually, there's a climb. I don't know. You can tell me the story. How did that climb? I only know it as the Hincapi. There's a climb around the back and everyone refers to it as the Hincapi. Why is that climb called the Hincapi? I have no idea. And I think it was actually called that after I left because it was a, you know, it was like a standard easy loop for us. It's two and a half hour loop from Girona, you know, more or less. And uh, we, we used to do it all the time, but we never, it's not like we ever really did made many intervals on it. It's not that steep, as you know, it's just kind of like a gradual huh. thing. Um, and I have no idea. I think one of the locals at some point just put my name on it and people started calling it the Hincapi climb. But uh, we might have to ask some guys, some of the guys that are there now. It's, it's, it's seriously, no one knows the real name of it. I, I've never heard, I wouldn't even be able to tell you what the name is. I know you just go to Castell or Selva and you turn left that way, but I never do it from that way. Yeah. I always do it from the other way or used to. Um, and I seriously, I, I don't know anyone who would know the name of that climb except for Hincapi. It's like, yeah, we're doing Hincapi. Yeah, Hincapi. And it's just like, you don't even think of you anymore. You just think that that's the name of the climb. I love that. Yeah, that is that is pretty funny, actually. Uh, well, let, let's just, g- I'll give you a quick background, everyone, who, who George is. Um, he's from Queens, New York. He rode 19 years in the Peloton, starting back in 94, three years on Motorola, 11 years on the US Postal Service, a couple of years on Team High Road, and he finished his career with BMC, where most of you would probably remember George more from the Grand Tours, from the Tour de France, where he famously rode for Cadell Evans to win his um, Tour de France win, but also all those victories that Lance Armstrong had as well. George was there on the front, drilling away. So that's what we know him from. But what I'm more interested in is the classics. And I don't know if everyone knows this, but George at heart is a true classics man. I'm a classics man too. He loves the classics. What I wanna know, George, because it's a bit different for Australians and Americans to get that love for the classics, opposed to say the Belgies or the Dutchies or even you know maybe the Frenchies as well, they really get in that culture from a young age. How did you get obsessed with the classics as an American? Well, I think it was sort of the way I was brought up cycling. I mean, I was, I was in, from Queens, New York, and I would race every weekend in Central Park and, you know, ride around New York City. And it was just really cold riding and a lot of stuff going on. So, like, there was runners, taxi uh, taxi car drivers, people. And I felt like I always had, like, sort of this heightened sense of awareness in the in, when I was riding. And so my when I first got to Belgium and I, my first race was, like, head bulk, um, and then um, uh, head broke and uh, current Russell's current. It was like, whoa, this is this is awesome. Like people are so stressed out, but I kind of <laughs> felt at home. Like it didn't bother me, and it just really motivated me. And then I did Paris Roubaix that year, and um, out of two hundred guys, I think only like forty, like thirty guys finished. And I was like one of the last guys to finish, but I loved it. I loved every second of that race. It was the worst, hardest thing I'd ever done in my life, but it was like I accomplished my dream come true. I'm racing the biggest one day race in the world. And, you know, fear was never really um, anything that came into my mind back then um, because of the way I grew up riding a bike in New York city. And as you know, being a classes guy, that that's, that's it. I mean, you can have the best legs in the world. You can be the strongest guy in the bunch, but if you don't know how to position yourself and you're not, you know, hyper aware in the bunch, you're not going to do anything in those days. Yeah, that's totally right. You, you can, and you can get so far with good legs, but at the end of the day, it's all about positioning. And then that's when the race winners go away. Let's talk about your classics career in a little nutshell, because I, I sort of loved reading through these results. I was a little bit unaware of all this. I don't know how I was, but 
You had two big wins, Ghent Wavelgum in 2001 and Kern and Brussels Kern in 2005. But it's more the top 10 placings that I love. Tour of Flanders, third, fourth, fifth, twice, sixth, seventh, and tenth in the Tour of Flanders. So it's just like, okay, when weren't you in the top 10? <laughs> Ghent Wavelgum, third, fourth, three times, fifth, and of course the victory. Paris Roubaix, second, twice, fourth, twice, sixth, eighth, and ninth in Roubaix. Like, a lot of guys I know are just hoping for that for that elusive top 10 one time in their career or, you know, they focus on trying to get top 10 and then the, the very special try and focus on the podium or winning it. You were just, a, you know, current, always in the top 10. That's what I love about it. Let's you, you hold the record of completing 17 Tour of Flanders, you know, also crazy. And another little grimy race in there, you won three days of De Punna. A lot of people don't know that. It's not three days of De Punna anymore. But that was just snuck in there. And a lot of guys, not many people know about that race, but that was a tough little grimy race, three-day race, hard little circuit with a time trial in it. You obviously, you also won that race as well. So the classics on a results side of thing, you also conquered it in my eyes as well. I want to speak more specifically about 2001. I've been shifting back through trying to find some stuff about you. And I just looked at 2001 and went, oh, wow, this is an amazing season for you. And it feels like for me, I could be wrong here. You can tell me. A bit of a breakthrough season for you. It was your fourth year with US Postal Team. Your eighth year as a professional. So you're sort of, you're ready. You've got the the strength in your legs. You've got the years of experience. Like you said, you, you felt it right with the classics in the first year, but it does take a long time to learn the courses. By the time you come around the eighth year, 2001, things were happening. The team was on fire and it started with the Tour of Flanders. The whole team was on fire. You had two guys in the breakaway. Matty White was there. Christian Vandeveld. I can't believe Vandeveld was so good in the classics. That's also surprised me. Yeah, it's funny when you said that. I, I had to go back to 2001. I was like, shit, Vandeveld was top 20 in Flanders that year. <laughs> I don't even know if he remembers. He, he wrote that. awesome too. He's like one of the last guys in the breakaway. The yeah. breakaway, I couldn't believe also. Let's talk about this. The breakaway makes it. When does that ever happen? And um, the team was one of the strongest teams in the race today. We were at the front all day. <clears throat> but it was a shame we didn't catch those eight guys at the end. Um, but I feel good, and um, I think I'm going to be very good in Roubaix and get well again. A performance like today, does that give you good morale for next weekend for Paris-Roubaix? Because that is a very important rendezvous for you. Yeah, it's definitely an important rendezvous, but today was uh, also very important for the team, and uh, we wanted a better result. Um, I'm happy with the way I felt, though. I, I know I rode a good race, and I was um, strong and felt good all day. So uh, I just hope to have good luck and have the same legs in Roubaix. Very good ride by Christian Vandervelde. Yeah, Christian's been doing great all year. Um, it was great to have him up in the breakaway, and then he tried to help me at the end um, to close the gap. Uh, so Christian did a super job, and expect to see him in the front in Liège. But the breakaway yeah. was full of rock stars. It was a big one too, I believe. It was quite a large breakaway. It was a big one, yeah. And there was lots of guys in it, you know, um, Vandervelde was in there. Well, like I said, Whitey was in there. You also had um, Nardello was in there. There was there's some other names too, and you guys were just behind. Um, not a lot of cooperation, but just if you can remember, tell me about if you can remember back to 2001. Like I said, it was a bit of a breakthrough. Gent Wavelgum, you were able to get up for that victory, um, coming from behind, beating Leon Van Bon in the sprint. Under the one kilometer to go, Banner now, and it's all down to the last thousand meters. George Hincapie trying to become the first ever American to win Gate Wavelgum, but he will be worried about the whereabouts of Van Bon and Vaseman certainly, and I don't think the others are giving up their thoughts of victory either at the moment. 
On the front, you've got Nico Matin. Right behind him, Georgie Hincapi. This is building up to being a very dramatic sprint. It's so difficult and it's so easy to make mistakes after a long, hard chase. Pizix getting the big gear going up the inside. Very tricky move there inside of Vaseman. Vaseman goes down the right. Hincapi's getting caught out. Well, that was a great move by Arvis Pizix. He came on the side nobody expected. Vaseman has had to chase now and Hincapi's in a spot of bother here. As we run down to line, Hincapi is looking to be in an impossible position now. He's got to come from last man if he's going to win this now as they drive up towards the line here. This is going to be a very close run thing because Pizik's legs must be running out of steam now. The challenge going on the right of our picture as we look now. This is neck and neck and Van Bon and Hincapi are coming. This is going to be right on the line. Van Bon Hincapi. Well, that will go to the photo, Paul. But the way Van Bon has smashed his handlebars, I think he's lost it. George, congratulations. Nice victory, well, and you know, needed it. I don't know if I won yet. Yeah, you won. Are you sure? Yeah, we are sure. Absolute yeah. take cattle. Yes, absolutely How's certain, and there's the reason. Taken. Photo 100%. finish. George has it's got sure. it. You win. You win against Bethlehem 2001. It's sure. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Yeah, but look at the photo finish. They're looking at the photo. He's They're noticed. looking at the photo. You don't need it. You win. I will not need to You really win, George. He says I won. He says he's sure, but. <laughs> you don't believe me? <laughs> if, if it's true, then I'm very happy. Well, matey, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Winning the bike race. Yeah, we finally pulled it off. Now, George, George has been the most consistent guy the last week or two here in Belgium, and uh, finally, I think he realised on Sunday that he could match it with anyone here, and he rode aggressive, and he's pulled it off today. It's a great ride. He was riding very sensibly too, because whenever the splits happened, he rode across to them. In the past years, he may well have sat back. Yeah, he, he's finally realised that he could do it, and you know we're really motivated as a team. And uh, I'm so happy for George. He's deserved this one. So hopefully we can do it again on Sunday. He's the man for the job. He looked very relaxed. Very good uh, pedalling action on all of the climbs today. You think he's got a chance Sunday? Yeah, definitely. I, I'd put him in the top, top three favourites for Sunday for sure. And then of course Roubaix was the 2001 wet Roubaix. You went in as a real favourite and you really got marked out of that race by Domo Farm Fritz where they sort of just pretty much outmarked you. You came back from all punches on Arenberg. It was just, you were the guy to beat. Tell me about that season if you can remember it and how that set you up for the rest of your classics and what that meant for you to get that victory at, at Genwaibogum. Yeah, well, I started off the year, well, I think I started in Algarve and I was, um, top, I think I was top three or top five overall made a lot of the breakaways. I was, I felt good. I knew that I had started the year well. I knew that I had a good winter off-season of training. And then uh, I believe I was second in, in Hood Bar, a really hard one-day race. Um, so the confidence, the confidence was there. Flanders was a bit of a disappointment for me. I uh, wanted to do better because I had the legs, but it just didn't really end up working out the way I did. Like you said, we had a great rep representation there. Um, and then, again, well, the game came along and won that. And that was a huge uh, for the morale boost. So I got to Roubaix just thinking, okay, I'm as good as I can be right here, and this is going to be my best year ever. And turns out I was. I mean, I got to the Arenberg Forest, and the race was very similar as in terms of conditions as it was this past year. I mean, you saw that it was like rainy, muddy, nasty. And, you know, I pretty much rode away from everybody at the Arenberg Forest. I was just on fire, felt amazing. And then all of a sudden I get a, a front, uh, front wheel flat and, in those conditions, as you know, Mitch, you can't even pedal. I mean, it doesn't matter how good of a bike handler you are, you cannot handle wet cobblestones with a flat tire. So, and I was in the middle of the cobblestone, no cars, no support. 
And I just kind of had to just sort of shuffle along until a motorbike came. And that really changed the dynamics of the race. All of a sudden, Wilfred Peters was able to catch me and go past me. And then I got caught up with uh, by Museu and Weinsteins and uh, Canavan. And it was just that then all of a sudden the team dynamics were majorly important, where at that point I was kind of riding away from those guys and I was putting them on the defensive. Um, so it made it. You know, it was a bummer, but that's Roubaix. You're bound to flat or crash. Most likely one of those one of those, or both of those are going to happen, especially in conditions like that. And I just remember, you know, getting closer to the end of the race and just getting tag-teamed by these guys, uh, you know, and there was really not much I can do. And I always joke that uh, Canavan owes me a beer because I pretty much selected him for the win because I was like, well, screw it. I know Museo's going to go. I know Pierre's going to go. I know Weinstein's going. I'm like, fine, I'll just let Canavan go. And he ended up winning the race. So it was like the biggest race of his career, which was uh, kind of funny. I mean, of course it was a disappointment, but looking back, there wasn't much different I could have done. Even as we were entering the velodrome, um, Museu, you know, they kept attacking me. Museu kind of rode away from me right before we got on the velodrome. And of course, beating Weinstein's in the sprint, you know, one of the best sprinters in the world at that time. Uh, so I did as, as, as good as I think I could have done. And it was... Uh, Definitely one of the most epic races of my career. But Hinkapi is showing them all a clean, I shouldn't say clean pair of wheels because it's pretty dirty out there at the moment. He's showing them his tail wheel as he heads over the forest of Arenberg in second position there. Wilford Peters is slipping all over the road trying to stay on the American's wheel. Well, the exit for Wilfred Peters, a brilliant piece of cobblestone riding he's done. George Hinkapi robbed of a chance to be with him there when he was setting the pace. He fell off and then when he was trying to restart, I think he nipped his tyre and had a puncture. Well, four riders from Team Domo in a leading group of six men. This is absolutely remarkable. Hinkapi must now be wondering what is he going to do. Hinkapi has to be very careful now because they'll try and cut him out. They know that he is the man on form. He's already won Gaint Wavel game just four days ago, and you can see they will try and split it. Oh, how painful is this now? Nobody willing to help Hinkapi. He's got a bridge and take three riders with him. Another attack has gone. This is going to be the, the scenario all the way to the finish right now. Team Domo Farmfreets will attack and attack. Again, they've sent the Dutchman off the front. This is the crouched style, the very low-profile style of the man who wears number three, Cerves Canavan. It's a one, two, three. Roman Weinstein's the world champion is over, and it's George Hinkapi gets fourth again. Um, it's, it's really disappointing. Because, um, I felt like that was one of the strongest, but it was just impossible. You know, they chase him down one time. You just know that as soon as you catch one guy, they're going to go again. So you got to take your hats off to the Domo. They were a super team today. You know, I had super legs today, but um, it's just impossible with a team like that against you. Yeah, totally. And, and like you said, let alone riding with a flat tire, I think the dynamics of Roubaix have definitely changed over my career. I started riding Roubaix with a 25mm tire, um, and I'm riding like a 32, well, last year we rode a 32 mil tire. So it makes a big difference, especially when you talk about a wet Roubaix. And I, I looking, just looking at the equipment through um, the videos I could find, you guys were running the stock standard, you know, classics wheels back then, 28 spokers. And I can't imagine much thicker than a 25 mil tire. For everyone listening out there, that does make a massive difference on the stones, dry cobblestones, let alone the wet cobblestones. And you guys were just flying over those things so for me, it shows also the skill that you guys still had back then. And it is impressive watching you on Arenberg. 
I would have loved to have seen what would have happened if you didn't get that puncher because you were riding away from Wilfred Peters, who was riding away from the rest of the peloton. Um, but it wasn't to be, and like you said, I've always joked about it that Carnarvon also was gifted that one, and he was the lucky chosen one. So it's funny that that's exactly the way you thought too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, well, let's, let's get into the main part of this podcast, which is pretty silly now. Um, this is Talking Luft. And George, you're going to have to think back to your pro days for a couple of these questions, but most of the stuff you're going to be able to answer because I've sort of honed it a little bit around now for me, who's a retired rider. This is all, it's broken up into five subjects. It's all it's about style, your bikes, culture, rituals, and about you. Some simple, quick questions, and we're just trying to find a little bit more about George Hinkap. All right, let's do it. Okay, so you ready to rock and roll? Yep, let's do it. All right, so caskets, cycling caps, what was your style? How did you like to wear your cap when you went up to the podium, or how do you like to wear your cap around today? Do you wear it forwards, backwards, the brim up, the brim down? What was your style? When I was racing, definitely brim up. Uh, no doubt brim up when I was racing. But now, you know what, I rarely ever wear hats. I wore one this weekend because it was kind of cold. I wore it backwards. But um, usually when I was racing back in the day, brim up, and I feel like uh, – you know, it was kind of that was kind of definitely my style back. Brim then. up forwards or backwards? Forwards, brim up forwards. <laughs> forwards. Yeah. Yep. When you raced back in the day, or even maybe training, what would your style have been? I know we we don't race without helmets now, but there was a period too. If and I always ask people who never got to race in that period, if you could have raced back in the day without a helmet, there was also a different style because you didn't have a helmet, so you had a free choice to wear a headband. You know, one of those sausage helmets I like <laughs> to call them. Maybe you had the yeah. you know the big the big hair flowing in the air, Cipollini style. What was your style racing back in the day without a helmet when you had a choice? Man, I would I would go um, actually. Without a helmet, I would go a lot back, hat backwards and brim up. But if you know, obviously, when it was hot, I'd go no, no, nothing, no hat, no hat, nothing. Um, and then occasionally, I'd grab, get, I'd get one of the guys to get my helmet if I was going for the sprint. But just thinking back in those days, like what were we thinking? You know, not, not racing with a helmet on. It just oh my god, it was just so so <laughs> like I can't even leave my garage now without putting a helmet on. Um, it definitely was not a wise thing, but it was you know. We're kind of part of the times back It's back. funny. I was speaking to a guy a couple of weeks ago, Alan Laquani, and he said that sometimes you're in the sprint train, you know, 10, 15, or 20K to go. There just wasn't time. Otherwise, you're going to lose your position to go get the helmet. So it was like sacrifice position or safety. You're like, huh, I'm sacrificing safety today. I'm in a good position yeah. for this sprint. Yeah, exactly. No, you, you didn't really think straight back in those days. That's for sure. Tell me about now. Do you still shave your legs? Uh, I haven't in a while, but like I still do some fun gravel events and with uh, friends. And you know, in the summer, occasionally, I'll, and actually, Lance makes fun of me all the time. He's like, "Do you shave your legs?" Like in the summer, I'll shave my legs, but I won't <laughs> in the winter at all. <laughs> now, when you go out riding, do you like to wear X Pro kit or do you like to wear the new wave stuff that's out there now? What's your what's your what's your kit set up these days? I never wear X Pro kit. <laughs> I always wear like. Uh, well, Why not? It helps that I have a clothing company, so I'm always wearing the latest things that we're making. Um, so I guess it's not a fair, you know, sort of assessment with me. But um, I always wear, and I wear simple colors: black, white. I wear I wear kits that promote my my podcast with Lance, uh, the Move kits. Yep. But never wear old pro kits. Never, not once. You'll never see me in an old pro kit. <laughs> oh no! I thought you could have got some old postal kit out, or even just like that high road kit when you used to have the you know the US um, bands on there. I love that kit. Yeah, that is a good kit. 
Um, but no, never wear it. And actually, I probably wouldn't fit in it in any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen you. You look pretty lean. Uh, not 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 as lean as I was when I was racing. Let's put it that way. All right, let's move on to bikes. RMG road bike, mountain bike, or gravel bike. What's your bike of choice these days? Oh man, uh, if you walk in my garage, it's like a bike shop. I got a couple of each, and it just really depends on you know, what, uh, what I feel like doing that day. So primarily during the week, I'll ride either mountain bike or road bike. And on the weekend, especially as it starts getting warmer here, we'll start doing some, some, some more, some gravel riding. So I really mix it up a bunch. I ride all three, three of those bikes. If you had to pick one bike forever, what would you choose? Oof, that's a tough one. I'd go, I'd go, oh man, I guess no. I'd go with a gravel bike cause I can use that for everything. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Okay. I like it. Yeah. When you go out now on the bunch rides, are you like that guy who gets up and goes, I need the hour of power, you get on the 6.30 morning bunch, you know, get a good sweat on, or are you a bit more of a social bunch guy? What's your bunch ride status these days? Um, I like I like riding in groups, but it doesn't usually work out that way. Um, I, I, I have Christian Vanneveld and Bobby Julik that live within 10 minutes of me, so we usually meet up once or twice during the week. And on the weekends, now my son is riding, so a couple of his buddies will come out. But our groups are usually never, you know, between, I'd say, three to ten people maximum. Um, so they don't get very big. Pretty cruisy or you're getting into it? Oh, yeah. We get we do pace lining. We tag each other. I mean, but for the most <laughs> part, it's cruisy. But then we'll pick moments where we want to go hard. Do you have a Strava account? I do. Do you hunt comms? <laughs> um, no, not, not having in a while. But I, Bobby Julik and I went out a few <laughs> weeks ago and we were kind of just diddly down around. We just missed it. So we're going back to get it <laughs> now, up, up in the mountains here. But you know what? They've gotten so competitive now that it's got to be real selective ones that uh, pros or, or real bikers aren't doing them if you want to get one. Yeah, or you gotta you got to find those ones where someone's altered it. You know, it starts slightly after the segment or goes like an extra 10 yeah. meters afterwards. You're like, yeah, I'll get that one. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, tell me about your favorite training loop of all time. I know it's a massive question, but just one that pops into your head that you go, you know what? I used to love that loop, and it could have been over in Europe, could be Girona, could be something back, you know, back in the day, it could be the Central Park loop. But just explain the loop to someone out there, because everyone's going to know it. Someone's going to live in that area, and just explain your favorite training loop that you like to do. Oh man, I might need your help on this. I was actually talking to Christian about it. It was the Vic loop. So. I don't know if you remember oh, yeah. the big loop when you go out sort of I toward, do. towards a lot and then you go over, yep. occasionally you go over colder brand cones or, or the one that's next to it that's kind of the gradual way up. And then you descend. Yep. I just don't remember the, the the town names in between, but you ended up at St. Hillary, which was an awesome, you know, what is it, like a 20K gradual descent back down into town. And then you kind of whip into Drona. That was my favorite loop and we do that all the time for training. Yeah, it was a beautiful loop. You go, like you said, over to Olot and you can go to Brecon's, which is a really tough climb. I've never done it that way because, you know, if I go over Brecon's, I'm just turning to go home. I would normally go up the way to um, Rupert and then you go down from Rupert to Vic. Exactly. And then from Vic, you, you yep. climb your way back up through this place called uh, Santa Cristina, I think it's called, or something like that. Which, is, the, an, which is an amazing climb. That's an amazing, amazing climb, climb, the back way into St. Hilary, and then you descend. You can go two ways down from there, either to Anglaise, or you could go down to Santa Coloma, yes. and then descend back yep. into Girona. Yeah, that's um. That, I love. I love that. I, lo I love that loop. The thing is, the thing I love about that is, you guys were the original guys to make these loops, and that got passed down through the way. And eventually, by the time I got there. 
I got shown that loop by someone else who eventually learned it off you and you learned it off. I love that progression mm. of loops, you know, like that you think yeah. you sort of found yeah. it, but someone showed you part of it. And to hear you talk about it, that back in the day, that was your loop. Yeah. I love that. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's a fun loop. A rider comes towards you. What is your, you know, gesture? Are you a wave guy and hand off the bar? Are you just sort of a simple finger off the bar? Or you, you know, get out, mate. Hey, Lance, what are you doing next week? You know, yell out. What's your gesture someone comes for you or you just don't even acknowledge them i'm a waver i definitely wave when i see a biker i wave in fact but i'm still a little bit scarred from something that happened to me when i was a pro biker i was here in greenville with my buddy craig lewis who's also a professional cyclist we're coming back from this epic ride in the mountains and we see a guy coming around this turn he's out of the saddle i wave to him well he waves back to us out of the saddle now i know we're good bikers but we can't (laughs) even do do that that. so He's out of the saddle, takes his hands off the bar, and I think I killed the person. He face-planted on his face. He's basically comatose. Like, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I killed somebody. (laughs) We're in the mountains. There's no service, so one of us had to stay there. I sprinted, like, 5K down the road to where I can get phone service, called the ambulance, told them where I was. They came, got him. I mean, this this all happened, like, at the end of one of our rides, and it was the scariest thing that I've ever seen on the bike. Thought the guy was dead. But, you know, the ambulance came. There wasn't anything we can do. They put him in the ambulance. And about two months later, there was a gas station about 10K from there that I always stopped at. It was about an hour from my house on the way home to get, like, a Coke or something just to find a little push home. And this guy comes up to me. He's like, hey, were you the guy that called the ambulance when I crashed? I'm like, yes, that was me. Oh, it was him. Apparently, he was in a coma for three days and, uh, like, was really messed up. But he made it. He survived. I'm like, Okay, I hope you learned a lesson. Do not wave to anybody when you're at the saddle because that doesn't work out well ever. So he obviously didn't even recognize that it was you. It wasn't like it was a fan thing. Like, oh my God, it's George Hincapie. I'm nope. out of the seat. I don't care if I crash. I need to wave to George. That was yeah. just his general, I don't care who that is. You just could have been anyone. anyone. He was so keen to wave. Yeah, yeah. And Love that. It was crazy. A scary moment. Tell me about, you've had many bikes over your career and over your time. What is that one bike that you is your best bike? It doesn't necessarily need to be the best bike in terms of performance but that one bike you go you know i just love that bike i know it's probably not you know state of the art right now but at its time something just felt right about that bike it could be one from today but what is your best bike um i mean you know how it is mitch i mean a lot of these high-end bikes are really good but i feel like the first time i got on a a bmc time trial bike i mean those things were ahead of their time Mm. back then of course nowadays they're all really amazing but the that first iteration of that BMC um, time trial frame was, I think it was around 2002 to no, about 2004 when I came out. That was like next level in terms of aerodynamics, lightweight. And uh, I remember fast forward till 2000, when did I get on BMC? 2010 when I got on BMC, those bikes were still, you know, next level good. And I just remember always loving that, that BMC time trial bike. And, and by the way, I am not a huge time trialist. I did. I never absolutely loved doing time trials, but I do love the design of good bikes, and I thought that was a, a great bike and ahead of its time. Mm, it, it, like you said, even if you weren't a, a specific time trialer, it felt good being on a on a really fast weapon. Um, and like you yeah. said, it, when those bikes were just slightly ahead of the time, you felt like you were in the peloton. You had a little advantage. You did have an advantage. It didn't even feel like that. You actually had a big advantage. Oh, yeah. 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 In fact, Bobby Julik always tells a story where 
I'm sure you remember where they 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 weigh our bikes before mm. a lot of these time trial stages. I think they still do. And he was he was starting behind Lance in the time trial, and uh, they weighed Lance's bike, and then they threw Bobby's. I think it was a Pinarello back in the day, which were crazy heavy. His bike was two kilos heavier than Lance's bike, and this is what Bobby saw right before the start of one of the time trial in a tour or something. Like think about mentally going. His bike's two kilos lighter than mine. How is that possible? It's like the it's they almost UCI almost do it psychologically for you. Yep, come up and look at this weight. Yep, yeah. here you go. And then you know you even see it with those UCI guys when they're lifting it up. Like, oh, this is a heavy one. Or even if the position's like <laughs> doesn't even get close to the limit, they're like, yeah, mate, you're right. I'm not even going to bother checking your bike. You've just got this crap position. You know, it's just these gestures <laughs> they give, and you feel like, oh, thanks, man. I'm just about to go off and do a time trial now. I feel like crap. Exactly. <laughs> Let's talk some culture. Um, tell me about your favorite bike race. Could have been a race you did, maybe a race. Um, there's probably going to be a race you did. There's not many races you didn't do. What is your favorite bike race of all time? Um, so I only did the Giro once, and I love racing in Italy. The food, as you know, is amazing. Um, back then, and it's not like that anymore because apparently the racing is a lot harder. But then the Giro was like one day was full gas, and then the next day was sort of piano sprint stage and you go hard mm-hmm. at the end. Um, but you were able to really sort of enjoy bike racing and chat with your buddies. And uh, I enjoyed it. Unfortunately, I only did it one time and I didn't even finish that zero. I was just doing it for training. So I did about 10 days of it. But I was on the form of my life. I can get any breakaway I wanted to. And uh, I just, oh. I love the culture of racing um, in Italy. And um, that's probably a, a big regret of mine is that I didn't do any more. I didn't do more than one zero. Oh, that sounds like heaven. It's definitely not like that. I can tell you. Last time I did the Giro, I was hanging there tooth and nail already by stage 10 thinking, how am I going to get through the next 11 days? So it's definitely not like that now. Exactly. Um, Favorite rider of all time? Favorite rider? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, Wow, I got to dig deep. Um, I'd have to say somebody that I rode with, probably Mark Cavendish, just because of his personality, um, his his, um, determination, his confidence, his person, you know, he's just a very funny, funny guy. Um, I, he was the guy that I had the most fun with in the Peloton, for sure. And just to see him, what he's doing up until, t- I mean, he won today. Uh, the guy's a really an amazing athlete. And, you know, he's been through a lot of hard times, even this year with his house getting broken into and being able to overcome such, you know, so many adversities throughout his career. I mean, he's, he's, he's about as good as it gets in my book. Well, it probably crosses across with favorite rider right now. Is he the favorite rider for you right now? Or is there someone else coming up that you think is more your favorite? Um, I love watching Philippe. where, I mean, if you, if, even if you watch mm. him in the beginning of the season, you know, you got someone like Nairo Quintana going and, and Philippe saying, I'm not good. I've been sick, but he still goes after these attacks. So the guy just races on pure passion and feeling. And it's not, it doesn't strike me as the guy that's just obsessed with the numbers. He just wants to go at, you know, go all in every time he can and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but when it does work it's, it's pretty amazing to watch yeah that's great that is a good one because he just feels like he hasn't lost that i guess almost juvenile sort of character where he just attacks with fearless attacks and you just like yeah. you lose that as you get older yeah, that, exactly. that defense mechanism like i'm not going to make it i'm not going to attack and he feels like he's still got it even with the rainbow jersey he just yeah. goes for it yeah exactly yeah. think about this favorite kit of all time and team it could be the combination you could go you know i really just you know typically i say mape i used to love that mape kit and that team had about you know 60 riders on the squad so how can you not love that team i was a force to be reckoned with in the in the classics that's my favorite kit and team is it for you 
What's when you think back? Is there a kit that you used to love, and you go, you know, what, I love that roster as well, or are they two separate things? Um, I used to love this the Seven Eleven kit. I don't know if you remember that the old school yeah. black shorts. Um, you know, red. What was it? Red, white, and green. It was just very classy, in my opinion. But back later on in my career, for some reason, I always loved that the baby blue Gerald Steiner kit. <laughs> I thought that was super classy, mm. and it kind of stood out. Um, but those those two kind of stand out for me um, for, for the most part. Nice. I like that. And I think also the team of the 7-Eleven is a nice combination. The kit was good, but that roster, the guys on that team was an awesome team too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and then the whole story yeah. about, you know, first American team in the Tour de France and just it was sort of a, you know, a fairy tale story. Think back and you're probably going to have a million of these, but the first one that pops in your head, I like to call it a war story. And typically I say the Giro. It doesn't sound like it's going to come from the Giro for you because the Giro for me was and is a race where you typically have a lot of war stories. Um, Think about a story that you go, just one of those days where you go, oh, you know, we're out the back all day or that wet Roubaix, uh, you know, crashed five times. What is that one day where you go, oh, that bloody day? Uh, the 1990, 1998 uh, Galibier to Alps. It started pouring <laughs> rain at the top of the Galibier or going up the Galibier. It was sort of snowing, raining. And there was no weather protocol then. And I just remember getting to the top of the Galibier. I was in the Gruppetto um, just dying. But it was the coldest I ever was in my entire life. And I thought, if I don't get down this mountain as fast as possible, like I legit thought I was going to die. And I think I passed like 50 to 75 riders going down the mountain because people were just shivering and couldn't even pedal. It was that cold. And it was the year that sort of um, Jan Ulrich was the favorite. Pantani ended up winning that stage. Jan slipped into like fourth overall. Um, but I, I got down that mountain just on the pure fear that I was going to die from frostbite or just you know cold weather it was that cold um just shaking the whole way down but the only way the only thing that i thought was get me through was just get down as quick as possible i've never passed so many riders going down a hill in my entire life and ended up finishing like pretty decent that day just because i went down that hill so bad but it was the coldest probably top two coldest days in my career what are the other riders saying at the end of that stage can you remember was there a bit like a discussion what the hell was that it was just yeah people there was just bodies everywhere i mean People went straight from the from the finish line. The, the, those that were lucky enough to have a hotel at the finish line, like in their bike kit into like warm bathtubs. There's no other. There was no like other ways to warm up. But that's the, I went from with a bike kit into a warm bathtub because I just couldn't stop shaking. I mean, it was it was a brutal brutal day on the bike. Well, we've got a couple of topics left. Rituals. Now think back to your time in the team, and I explain this because not a lot of people know this, but typically with a team, there's a bus a team bus and at the end of a stage in a grand tour it's like let's get the riders back you know let's get them back to the hotel massage whatever and actually most often than not the car you get forced into the car you get squashed in the car with you know extra wheels and and rain bags and all this sort of stuff with this idea that you're going to get back and get your massage done and be on the dinner table early were you a guy that went in the car or you were just like nah look i already know the car thing that only literally saves four minutes I'm just going to kick back in the bus. What were you? I was definitely a, a, a kicking back in the bus sort of guy. I mean, if it was going to be 15 minutes yeah. faster, no way. I mean, if it, if it was a two-hour sort of difference, I would consider it. But if it was anything under, you know, 45 minutes or 30, I would definitely be – I had my spot in the back of the bus laid out, you know, either had a book with me or, or you know, making phone calls. But the bus was – 
was a lot more uh, comfortable and uh, easier option for me. Now, being if it was a choice of once we got to the hotel, I'd always, especially towards the latter part of my career, the guys would always make fun of me because I would be first one at the dinner table and then first one gone. So I was, I was either laying in my bed or eating in those grand tours, especially as I got older. Because I'm like, look, I love socializing, but I need to recover. So I'll talk to you guys tomorrow. But I was always at up the dinner table first. Perfect. Well, talking about that, best and worst roommate. Actually, the worst roommate was last time I asked this question was quite a hard one to say, but maybe you've got one up your sleeve. You don't want to throw him under the bus, but you know, go for it if you feel like it. Best and worst roommate. So I, you know, there was a, and I would say there's more of a, you know, a um, nationality in terms of worst roommate because when I used to room with the Spanish guys and I love Spanish, I love Spanish people. I'm Colombian. I speak Spanish. But they would never let you open the windows in hotel rooms because they thought you'd get sick. And you'd be sitting in hotel rooms with like, you know, 30 degrees out and you, there's no air conditioning. And, and they thought if you opened the window or a couple of them, you would the breeze would make you sick. And I'm like, bro, I need air in this room and I need the fan going or I'm going to die. So those would be my worst roommates. Um, I'd say best, uh, go back to like probably Mark Cavendish. We laughed our asses off many times in rooms. Um, now, who else was a good roommate? Marcus Berghardt, him and I would room a lot together in oh, the yeah. classics. And, you know, he's he's always like the, you know, quintessential German guy where you think he's very serious and not very joking. But when you got him in the room, he was quite funny and uh, always lighthearted. And, you know, we, we always had good times back in the day. Don't know if this is for you, but I'm pretty sure this would be the same for you. But how do you pass the salt at the dinner table? Oh, definitely not. You can't. Even now, I don't let anybody touch the salt. You got to put it down and then somebody can grab it. Otherwise... That's very bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any other superstitions? Um, no, that was that. That was definitely like I'm sure with you passed along throughout the cycling culture. Like you could not pass the salt at, at uh, the dinner table on a cycling team for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you go to hand it to someone's hand, or they try and hand it to you, and you just look at the salt and you're like, "What the hell do you think you're doing? Put that thing <laughs> <Exactly>. down. <laughs> Put it down. Put it down. It's like That's a exactly grenade. Right. It's like get that away from yep. me. Yeah. All right, the last one about you, BWS, beer, wine, or spirits. What's your poison? Uh, definitely wine. Uh, wine is my poison. Uh, I, I drink a little bit of beer. Depends on, you know, mm. the mood, but I'm more of a wine drinker for sure. What coffee do you drink? Do you like to start in the morning, you know, Italian style, cappuccino in the morning, espresso in the afternoon, or are you a bit more American style? Get a big uh, batch brew on, go all day. So I go, my first one's black. And then I put a little bit of cream in the second one, but no, you know, I don't do the the cappuccinos or the lattes on a daily basis. Of course, if I'm sitting at a coffee shop and um, that's, that's definitely a thing that appeals to me, but on, for definitely not everyday thing. Do you have a favorite cross training exercise? Like I know we love riding. Is there anything else you do? Do you get out for a run, hit the gym? What's your cross training exercise? So the reason I'm late for this podcast is I had, I had a tennis match that I couldn't reschedule. <laughs> so I love tennis. I'm addicted to tennis. That's fine. And I also lift weights now four days a week in my gym here at the house. Um, so I, I definitely feel like I'm a much more balanced athlete than when I was a professional cyclist because as you know, like all you do is ride a bike. And if you go for a 10-minute walk, you get sore back in the day at least. So I feel like I, I try to spread out my athleticism as much as I can these days. Yeah, nice. It is that thing too. You come off the bike, you see these guys who have been riding for so many years and they look like they're riding a bike when they're walking around. You know, their back's curved over yep. and you feel yourself going that yep. way. You're like, yep. I've got to do something different here. I'm just turning into one dimensional. Yep. Exactly. No, I, I definitely am a, a big advocate of, of cross training and I feel like 
you know, especially when you, like you said, you've ridden your bike your whole life, you stop riding that much. Um, things are going to start changing very quickly. So for me, it was always important to, to stay as fit as possible after a cycle. Now tell me about the most rewatchable race out there. Um, I know you said you don't get a chance to watch many races anymore, but that one race that sticks out for you now, um, a race you think if someone hasn't seen it, they should go and watch it. Well, just going back to this past season, watching that Roubaix, you know, really reminded me of, of the 2001 Roubaix where it's just epic, epic conditions. The rainy weather turned up for the first time in almost 20 years. Paris-Roubaix 2021, whatever happened, would go down in history and the race would live up to all of the weight and expectation. It was worth the wait. The mud, the epic atmosphere and the nerves since the start. After Carrefour de l'Arbre, there were three riders remaining. The famous velodrome awaited. They come in to take the one and a half laps on the concrete. Concrete that had dried out with the wind blowing after the rain had stopped. The bell ringing and everybody looking to find a pool. This is what sport is about. People are just crashing, going on a straight line. Um, you know, the stress that riders go through in a, in a race like that is just, is just uh, mind, mind boggling. I mean, those guys, the guys that finished first, to the guys who actually finished last, they're gonna, they were probably exhausted for two weeks after that race. Um, it's just such a hard yeah. mental race that takes so much out of you with the cobblestones, with the crashes. And um, they probably all got sick because you're just eating like manure the whole time. Yeah. I'm sure it's just, yeah, like just watching that, you know, that's a race I can definitely go back and watch. It was very exciting. Was there like that reminisce for you? You know, like 2001 was, I think arguably worse. When I look at 2001, it looked harder. Maybe that was because of the equipment, but I watched the night before Roubaix this year, 2001, 2002, and I sort of got scared. I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be hell. But actually when we did it, okay, I wasn't at the pointy end, but I was still riding those cobblestones. Weirdly, I could get across them okay. But in your years, 2001, yeah. it was like guys were just going everywhere. Yeah, they were going everywhere. And it's, yeah, I don't know if I was you know, lucky on some of those sections, but you know, you watch the crashes, especially this year and guys are, they're not really, it's not, it's not like they're doing something wrong, but they're just sliding out for some like unexplained reason. Yeah. You know, perhaps the tire pressure, but like you said, the tires are much better this year, this, these times than they were back then. Um, but it's just, for me, it was always about staying as relaxed as possible and just, you know, trying to trust the equipment as much as you can. Well, last question, mate. The best thing for you about riding a bike, what's that one thing that really brings you joy? Well, now it's, I, I still love going out there and, uh, you know, riding alone or with friends and being able to still just love, love the bike. Now I have a, a, my son, my 13 year old rides a bike as well. It's, it's really fun being able to watch him progress and being able to, you know, coach him as much as I can. Um, so I still love riding a bike. I don't go more. It's funny when I was, when I was a professional cyclist, I would take, a month off right after the season wouldn't touch my bike but i've been retired now for almost 10 years and the most i've taken off my bike is like three or four days if i go somewhere without it but i'm still riding all the time and um, I, it's something that i need in, in my life to, to keep me sane and to keep me healthy that's awesome mate well it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you i'd love to chat some more but we've had enough of your time today thank you very much for coming on talking luft you've been a special guest thanks george my pleasure mitch it's great great to see you
like I said, I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did because I love talking to George. He's such a lovely bloke and he had so much stuff to talk about. Really, really tough to just pick 2001 classic season. But what an epic season that was. Go back and watch some of those races. I had the best time researching him because the classics back then were just awesome. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just the era that I really loved watching, but I felt like the classics were just happening. The old Tour of Flanders parkour, George being in every race, the old riders I used to watch growing up. So I don't know. That nostalgia part of it for me is just awesome. This podcast wouldn't happen without all the support we're getting from Rafa this year, and I'm really loving it. I'm loving working with them on the podcast. I'm loving working with them on the bike, all the racing stuff that I'm going to do this year, all the alternate stuff. It's a really, really exciting year for me through the podcast, but also the stuff that I'm doing on bikes too. Next week, I've got a really special episode for you. It's my first episode on the road as I embark on my first event as a non-pro. A two-day event, the Otway Odyssey, a pretty famous event here in Australia in the mountain bike and gravel scene, the 100k marathon race, followed by the 100k gravel race. My opening weekend. It coincidentally was on the exact same weekend as the opening weekend classics in Belgium, Umlop Het Newsblad and Kern and Brussels Kern. And it just fit. It felt like those two races and I captured some audio when I was out there. I've strung it together and that is going to be next week's episode. I want to say a big thanks to Lara behind the scenes and of course Will Jones who puts these episodes together for me. And guys, a big thanks to you listening. So until next week, cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.